everything is what the Scripture declares to us. That was one of the big uh, questions that we asked at the very beginning of this series. Is in your life, for those of you that are followers of Christ, has following Jesus changed anything? If not, then we need to come to a place where we begin to examine our lives in light of Scripture and in light of what God wants to do within us. This is the fifth in the series of follow that we've been on, and I understand last week that Pastor Mark preached a phenomenal message on uh, followers heal, and and I'm so thankful for that and uh, the response that we heard. We understand that there was a, a family that had come for the first time that came to uh, our family outing of Trunk or Treat, and they came the next day, and eternity was changed for them as a result of that. And let me just tell you something. It's worth every ounce of effort and every piece of candy we gave out to know that eternity changed for a family. It's worth it all. That's what this is about. And we're so thankful for that. If you have your Bible, I'm going to ask that you take and turn to Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. We've been dealing in this series of follow about taking scriptures from Matthew, about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ. And if you're here today and you're not a follower, I'm so glad you're here because you're going to get an opportunity to make that decision as we get to the end of the service today. And for those of you that are, it will give us an opportunity to examine ourselves in light of Scripture. One of the things that frustrates me a little bit as a pastor today is that uh, in, in conversations with people, I've discovered that people are looking for churches that preach what they already believe rather than looking for churches that preach the words and letting the Lord mold us and make us into His image. And so if you're here today and you're looking for a church that preaches what you already believe, I hope you believe the Word because we preach the Word here. Because we understand it's the Word that will hold us and and steadfast no matter what we face in life. Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 and 20. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Lord, over these next few moments, I ask that you would begin to open up the understanding of our heart and that you would take the truth of your word and that you would plant it there and water it through your Holy Spirit and let it grow within us. Lord, We didn't come here today just to be with friends. We came here to meet with you and to learn of you. And so I ask that we would not waste the visitation of your Holy Spirit this morning, but that we would be attentive and that we would draw near to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, Most of you who attend this church know that I'm a missionary's kid. I love missions. I love missions conventions. I love preaching about missions. And last week I enjoyed uh, preaching at my friend's church. Uh, I discovered, again, as I said, how much I love my church. Uh, because of the different personalities that we face. And I have preached on this passage of Scripture many different times and in many different places. And uh, there have been many preachers that have taken this passage and have used it as a launching pad of a message that said that we are commanded to go. We are commanded to go. Have any of you ever heard this, this Scripture preached that way before? Many of you have. I, I took two years of Greek in college. Hardest classes I ever took. But I also learned a lot about Scripture when I was doing that. And this was one of the passages of Scripture that we begin to break down within our Greek classes. And in the original language, if you take a look at this, the way that it is written for us or the way that we interpret it is not exactly the way that it was intended when it was originally written in Greek. So let me give you a little bit of an idea because it changes the meaning for us and will change the direction of where we're going this morning. The original language would be 
um, that there was a participle at the beginning and the end. And so rather than the command being, therefore, go, the command is really, as you are going, make disciples. As you are going, make disciples. And so rather than splitting it up and saying to everybody, we must go, there's an understanding that we are all living life and everywhere we go, we're about the Lord's business. And he said, so the command to you, the command of my followers is as you are going, as you are doing life, as you are busy about the things that I'm leading you to do, make disciples. And then at the end, it begins to list for us the supportive pieces of that scripture which would be after you make disciples, then you command them, teach them everything that I've commanded. You baptize them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, which gives us the, the method by which we baptize people in water, which is the public confession of their faith. So we want to regularly have water baptism services here. And so he says, here's the command to us. Here's the command to the church. <clears throat> the one command. Make disciples. Make disciples. While you're doing life, be fishers of men. Now, if you remember back, some of us have memories that are wavering in and out because we're grandparents. Some of you have really, really sharp memories. But if you can remember all the way back to five weeks ago, when we started this series, we had a memory verse that was found in Matthew 5, 19. <clears throat> it was the easiest memory verse of the whole series. Come, follow me, and I will make you... Some of you have phenomenal steel trap minds that can remember all of that. Now, as most of you know who know me, I love fishing. I love fishing. I enjoy it as often as I can. And, and uh, I enjoy fishing in the lakes and in the rivers. And I enjoy especially deep sea fishing, having spent a number of years on Long Island and with kids that live in Florida. They know whenever I come down, <clears throat> we're going out deep sea fishing. And uh, as we did that this past August, many of you who may have been around the ocean know that every boat has a name on it. They all have these unique names. And uh, I, I've asked that we could put a few boat names up here <clears throat> so that... Uh, now, I just want you to look at the name and get a little bit of an idea of what the owner might be thinking as they title their boat Missing Peace. Now, to me, I hope somebody has a boat named this is in church today. <laughs> Next one. tax Taxivation. I'm not even going there. She got the house. Yeah. Yeah. The Codfather. Now, see, I like this one because at least it tells me the individual owns that boat, fishes for God. It's a, it's a little bit of a description. Is there any other ones? Is future poor person. That is a realistic boat owner right there. That's a realistic boat owner. So here we have... These boats that have the names on the back of them. And, and I want to approach the message this morning with two thoughts. Number one, this church is to be a big old fishing boat. That's what our church is to be, a big old fishing boat. Also, we find very clearly that your life, the way you live it, is to be a big old fishing boat. And so what, what would the people that know you put as the name on the back of your boat? What would the people that know you put as the name on the back of your life? You see, your identity as a follower of Christ is that you are to attract people to God. And this isn't a command to, men, to people who have been following him for a long time. It's not something that he says, once you have been, 
in the fellowship of believers for a year or two, then you are to start to attract. He makes this command immediately after people first come to know him and receive him in faith. Immediately he says, I am changing you. Your nature has changed. You are a brand new creature. And from this moment on, your desire is to be so attractive that people love your God and give him glory. And so instantly there's a transformation that takes place when we come to know the Lord that should be making our God attractive to the world. And so let me ask you a couple of questions. If this is what the command of the word is, that we are to be disciple makers, that we are to be fisher of men, then how can a church go for 20 years and never have a single convert? How can a church go without having life on a regular basis being brought into it? And while we're sitting there thinking about that, and some of you may have had experiences with churches like that in the past, let me ask it a little bit more personal. If we're called to be fishers of men, how can a Christian go their whole life and never lead one person to Christ? If we're called to be fishers of men and to be attractive in the way that we live, to draw people to God, how can a Christian go five years and never influence somebody to love their Savior? You see, it's easy when we put it in a corporate setting and say, well, I wouldn't want to go to church like that. But on the other side of this coin, the Lord says, if you're going to be a follower of me, then there needs to be something about your life that attracts and reflects my glory so that others can come to love me as you do and that our life is to be about influence. And today we're talking about learning to influence. Now, I don't say this to condemn you, but I say it to challenge you because somebody is placing a title on the back of your boat by the way they see you live and what you say. And one day we're going to stand before God and He's going to ask us what we did with the one thing that He commanded us to do, and that's make disciples. So here's the big idea today. Followers of Jesus are called to attract people to Him. Followers of Jesus are called to attract people to Him. On the church Facebook page this week, I posted a statement, and some of you have had some comments about it. <clears throat> stated this, a Christian without influence is like a kite without wind. It's lifeless and it's grounded because followers are called to be people of influence. Now, very quickly, let me tell you a little bit about what influence is. Influence is an invisible force that drives people to care about what you care about. And here's some very interesting things very quickly about influence. Number one, influence is a byproduct of trust. Influence is not easily earned. Influence is fragile and can be lost quickly. How many of you have had people in your life that used to be an influencer, but because of something they said, did, or the way they acted, they lost that influence in your life? So Influence can be dangerous. If you don't think so, think of Adolf Hitler and Charles Manson. And influence is a means of accomplishing the mission. If you want to see a living example that we know of, of somebody who has lived a life to accomplish the mission, think of Billy Graham and the two and a half million people that have responded to the altar calls that he has given. That's about influence. And so I want to spend a few minutes this morning sharing with you some encouraging news about how the Bible speaks to us about how we can participate in being an influencer for the things of God. How do people find Jesus? As we begin to think about that as the first point, and for those of you that may have a bulletin, the outline for this message is there if you want to jot some things down. There are six different ways that are listed in the New Testament about how people find Jesus. And I think it's refreshing for us and encouraging for us because sometimes we get a certain image in our mind of, of what must take place. And 
And sometimes that image is of a certain style of evangelist. And the first way that people find Jesus is through confrontation. This is found in Acts chapter 2. If you read that, you'll discover that Peter, who was very confrontational in the way that he approached preaching one day. I really find this interesting about Peter because it tells us on the day of Pentecost that he stood before 3,000 or more thousands of people and preached and 3,000 and responded to him. This is the same man that a few days ago couldn't admit that he was a follower of Christ around a fire in the middle of the night to a slave girl. Something about the power of the Holy Spirit invading his life changed everything in him. And that will be the last message that we have in this series at the end of November about being empowered to follow. But he stands up that day and he begins to proclaim a word that is very confrontational. Let me just tell you this. I understand that we are in the day and age when churches are doing our very best to proclaim a message that is palatable to people. But I want you to know something. There's only two reactions when you hear the word of God. You will either humble yourself and respond to it or you'll get angry and leave about it. Trying to make it as palatable as we can uh, doesn't change the fact that it is a decision-bringing word. And that we come to that place where we either choose to submit ourselves to Christ or we reject. And the Lord said our job is to tell, not to make the choice for people. And so he stands up and he begins to preach. And amazingly, 3,000 some people come to Christ. And there are people that we know that are gifted at confrontational evangelism. Those that we generally think of who are evangelists generally are rather confrontational in their approach. It's the reason why most people in our churches today say that's not for me. I don't have the gift of evangelism because I'm not confrontational. I, I don't enjoy that. I'm not comfortable with that. And it's the reason why many, many people in our churches today have, have sat back and said, I will leave evangelism to other people because that's the style that's going to be used. That's not me. So God's office is going to use me in something else. And I want you to know that was only one of the ways that people came to Christ. There's another way that people come to Christ also, and it's found in Acts chapter 17. It's an intellectual approach. In Acts 17, and you don't have to turn to it, but let me just briefly give you the idea that Paul is going into Athens, and as he's walking into this city, he sees that there are idols everywhere, and it begins to grieve his heart. Have any of you walked anywhere where your heart is grieved? Where you're just going, ooh, your spirit just begins to, to churn inside of you. As Paul's walking into the city of Athens, he begins to see all of the idol worship going on around him, and the spirit of God within him begins to churn in a very uncomfortable way, and rather than running from it, saying, God is not here, he begins to engage it. And this is what he does. He began to challenge the modern intellectuals in both their synagogues and their marketplace, the scripture says. In fact, as you begin to do a little study of this, he took their literature, he took some of the nature of the gods that they serve, and he took their poetry, and he began to address them right where they were about Jesus Christ in this way. And at the end of chapter 17, you come to this verse that said, at the end of it, a few people became followers, and then it lists a couple of names. Now, you would look at that and think, what a waste of time. He spent so much time, and worked so hard, and only a couple of people actually became followers of Christ. Now, we would look at that today and say, that probably wasn't worth it. But what if you were one of those two people? And what if you were one of their families whose eternity was changed and generations may have been changed after that? There are some people, I am not one of them, there are some people who love the intellectual challenge of speaking to people and leading them to Christ this way. 
And we need to understand that we live in a day and age where there are stumbling blocks to becoming a Christian for some intellectuals. Issues such as creation. Is it a literal six-day creation? Or is that an age, each one of those days representing an age? Do we have a new earth? Do we have an old earth? And, and how does science fit into all of this? There are those that legitimately have issues that need time. And, and for those of you that, that may approach the Lord on an intellectual basis, it probably was a process for you. But there are people that come that way, and there are some of you that are gifted in being able to have the patience and the time needed to work with people through that. There's a third uh, aspect of the way people came to Christ in the New Testament, and that was testimonial. And we can read about this a little bit in John 9, 25. I find this really interesting because most of you know it's about a blind man that Jesus took mud, rubbed in his eyes, and helped him to see. But did you know that that blind man was not a follower of Jesus? Didn't even know who he was. Jesus just came walking by, saw he was blind, took mud, spit in it, rubbed it. I, I, that would be approach we probably wouldn't do here at the altar. And the man who everybody knew in town could suddenly see, and, and as he goes around seeing, people didn't know who he was because he could see. And, and the religious leaders called him in and said, who did this? And, and he says, honestly, I don't know much about him. Is, and the question was, is he from the devil? He goes, I don't know. And, and after, then they interviewed his parents because the whole thing was, who was in sin, his parents or him, because he was blind. And, and Jesus said, none of them. It was just the way life goes. And he says, he was blind so that I could make a point. And at the very end, after this whole chapter of arguing back and forth about the, the, the goodness or the righteousness of Jesus, they, they call this man back in again and they said, you know, they ask him and he, and he, in frustration, you can almost read it when you're in the scripture, he goes this, he goes, One thing I do know, I don't know about him, but here's what I do know. I was blind, but now I see. I was blind, but now I see. Now sometimes, listen, sometimes all it takes is you telling your story to influence somebody else to come to Jesus Christ. It can be that easy. And suddenly we look at this and go, oh, so evangelism is not just confrontation. But sometimes I can be just used telling my story. Testimonial. What God has done for you could be the key that would change somebody's heart. The next way we see in the New Testament is found in Luke 5. Interpersonal relationships. Now, when we were studying this a little bit this summer, I asked how many people are far more comfortable speaking to a friend about their faith in Christ, and everybody raised their hands. So uh, what I want you to see today is if you have friends, you have influence. If you don't have friends, that's another issue. Then we're going to go back and talk about this attractiveness and reflecting Christ issue because there's something going on there. But if you have friends, uh, this is really just a friend telling another friend about Jesus. And in this particular account, uh, it's about Matthew, who, for those of you who know anything about Matthew, before Jesus came into his life, he was a reprobate sinner, hated tax collector. And there are actually two kind of tax collectors, and he was the worst. Matthew had basically had to cut a deal with Rome to be able to take your money. And it was a very lucrative scam because honesty and fairness were not part of it. And so he was a part of a scam where he was robbing people all of the time. And there was little that they could do about it. They had little recourse but to pay. And Jesus one day, now you have to picture, because the scene I see is Matthew was sitting there at his tax table along with all of his friends who had their tax table. And Jesus comes walking by Matthew and he simply looks at him and he says, follow me. And the Bible says that Matthew, Levi at the time, dropped everything and went and followed him. Now, we understand better what that means after the first week when, we, when Jesus went walking along the shore of Galilee and when the, when the rabbi says, follow me, that was the invitation to become 
uh, one of his followers and the, the, he would learn from him. And so now we understand when Jesus looked at this man, he said, I'm offering a future that's better than what you can make. So follow me. And Matthew said, I don't care how lucrative this is. I'm dropping it. I'm following him. And then that night, Matthew calls all of his friends. Now, who do you think Matthew's friends were? He says, we're having a party at my house. And all of his lousy, stinking IRS friends come over. And they're all there together. And Matthew invites Jesus to come. And I've thought about this. Why does he invite Jesus? And the reason is because Jesus is awesome at parties with sinners. Think about that for a minute. Think about it. When's the last time that you thought of a Christian being awesome at a party with a bunch of non-Christians? Because this is my sticking point with the life of Christ in a modern world. Because sinners love to be around him and he's the embodiment of holiness. I, I struggle with that one. Because we're not there yet. And yet Jesus was invited to this. Friend to friend, Matthew said, I want, to, I want you to be introduced to all of my friends. And Jesus went to a party with really rotten people and he influenced them. But that's how some people come to Christ is through really great friendships. Next is invitational. In John chapter 1, verses 41 through 42. Some people may never be able to tell you anything, but here's what they can do. Guess what? We're having this really cool thing at our church. Would you come? Would you just come? How many of you think you could invite somebody? I'm going to try that again. How many of you... I've never seen such hesitation. What are you going to do next? Obviously, I have lost my influence and trust here somewhere along the way. How many of you think you could invite someone to church? Do you know that that's an evangelistic style? I can't tell you how excited Cindy and I were to meet so many of your friends as we were greeting people at Trunk or Treat. And to hear what they say about you, and most of it I could repeat. They came because they were invited. And the interesting thing about this invitational one is the illustration here is Andrew. It says, as soon as Andrew came to know Jesus, the first person he went to was Peter, his brother. And he goes, Peter, I need to introduce you to Jesus. Now, that's about the end of what we hear about Andrew. How would you like that to be your swan song? You were the one that introduced Peter to Jesus. But you know what? Andrew did what he could. And he did what he was good at. So just inviting somebody to church could be your means of influence in their life. The last one that's mentioned in the New Testament is serving in Acts chapter 9. And there, there's a lady by the name of Dorcas that is mentioned. By the way, Jesus did a lot of serving. Did you notice that? I would imagine that when he went to a party with sinners, he was the one that was serving them somehow. He's asking the host, hey, what can I do to help out here? I just want to get involved. Let me help out. And, and as he's serving different people and doing different things, he's just engaging in conversation, already knowing what they think. He'd be really hard to have at a party because you'd be trying really hard not to think bad things. And he's just serving people. In Acts 9, it talks about Dorcas, a lady who, who her gift was making clothes for people. And when she died, all these people are coming and they're wearing what she wore. And they're, they're giving glory to her God because of the way that she served them. It was her way. And every one of us can serve people to reflect the glory of God. 
And so we begin to understand from the Great Commission that as we are going, as we are living life, we are to be an influence. And it's not an option. It's not to be part of the process of what we, we do this over here. It's to be everywhere we go, we're looking for ways to influence people because we have a life-changing, eternity-changing message that is worth being heard because we know Jesus. Not because we're arrogant, but because we know the way. Now, I know that when I find a good product, I'll tell people. But I found the best Savior. Why should we be ashamed? And so we're followers. We're to reflect His glory. The next thing is, what settings do people find Jesus in? And there's a number of different settings. First of all, you'll discover in Matthew chapter 5, 1, that Jesus spoke to large crowds. It said, now when He saw the crowds, He went up on the mountainside and He sat down and He began to teach them. I love this about Jesus. If He sees people gathering and following, He just sits down on a mountainside and somewhere where his voice can be heard, and he begins to speak to thousands. This reminds me, in a, in a limited way, of a congregational service. And if you listen really closely, for those of you that are listening to the Scripture um, during your devotional time, or if you're reading it, you'll notice that when Jesus is speaking to large crowds, he speaks a lot of things that we don't fully understand, and he doesn't fully explain them. There was a time when Sydney and I were listening, I'm going, I'm going, listen to that. When you hear what he told the crowds, you could leave confused. And so he begins to speak to the crowds and he shares all these things. And then he comes from there after the large crowds. He gets into small groups. And it tells us in Matthew 13, 10, the disciples came to him and they said this. Why did you speak in parables? Listen, why didn't you just talk clearly? And Jesus begins to tell him, let me tell you what this parable means. And so there's a learning style that takes place here. People can come to Jesus in this in the sanctuary, in the service. There's also... The reason that we have small groups is because we recognize there's a lot more interaction that takes place in small group. You can talk about the things you've heard and you can begin to hash it out. And, and in a small group that we have, we, we need everybody to join those as we begin to, to launch those again this winter if you're not a part of one. Because it's in those that you can begin to hash out exactly what Jesus meant in a service such as this. And then in Matthew 18, 20, another setting that people find Jesus in, it says where two or three come together in my name, I am with them all there. Now, we've often used this verse as an excuse for really small prayer meetings. Everybody calls a prayer meeting and you have 250 people on a Sunday morning and you have four that show up on Sunday night for prayer. By the way, we are having prayer tonight. Six o'clock to seven. It's the Lord's day. That's enough guilt. And we've used this scripture, but what this is really talking about is there's value in having even a smaller group of people that you may be associated with in a small group. That's why we launched out in the prayer triplets over a year ago, where people get together on a once a week or every other week basis, and you sit down, and you just have conversations about spiritual things, where in a smaller group of people, you can begin to reveal yourself as you get to know and trust one another. The Lord says, I reveal myself in those ways. And then the last way that we find in another setting in which Jesus reveals himself is Luke 5, 16, and it says, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. I've, I've spent some time this week thinking about that term, to lonely places, to lonely places. As I was studying that verse, mops was going on two doors down. And I could hear the little kids down in the basement. And my first thought was, when does a mother of preschoolers ever have a lonely place? The bathroom's not even a lonely place. You long for lonely places. And yet the scripture says this is one of the places where the Lord meets with people, in the lonely place. 
which speaks to me about a personal devotional time. For those of you that went with us to the movie that night on The War Room, you know the impact that it made on all of us. And, and some of you have even cleaned out closets and started sticking papers up on your closet walls. And, and you've turned that place into a place where it is the war room of prayer for you because we need to be at war in prayer. The personal devotion time with God is where he speaks and he leads and he examines our lives in prayer and meditation. And it's a place, it's a setting where people find Jesus in. And it brings us to the last point of then, how can God use your story? I've told you before, I'm, I realize it's a blessing now that I was raised in a Christian home. The mom and dad that were pastors when I was young, missionaries as I was a little older. My testimony is of God's keeping power through my formative years. But I used to hear the testimonies of those who came out of such horrible backgrounds. And I, I remember thinking, now that's the kind of testimony that people come to Christ for. What, what good's my testimony? But I recognize as I've grown older that everybody's testimony has value because it's what God's done for us. There's value to your story. And you should be unashamed to tell your story. Because number one, it helps people around you know why your life is changing. I've told you many times that when you receive Jesus as your Savior, there should be discernible, definable growth within your life that people ought to be able to observe the things that you used to be. As you grow in sanctification, the Lord begins to change you more and more like Him. And so people are looking at you going, what is going on? Your story gives them the reason that they can trust in Jesus Christ. It helps them know why your life is changing. Secondly, it brings honor to God because your story, when it connects with faith in Jesus Christ, will always be about him and not you. It will always be God honoring and glory to his name. Next, it gives people hope that if God can do that for you, he can do it for them. And so suddenly there's a reason. Well, I used to, I know the way you used to be. And if God can do that, then you know, I'm not nearly as bad as you were. And it gives them hope in Christ. And the last reason to think of is it's hard for people to argue. There, I've, I've discovered today people love to argue more than ever before about, about Scripture. But you know what? You can't argue with somebody's personal story. You can't argue with it. And so here we are, Grace Assembly of God, a big fishing boat. Sometimes we're going to smell like fish if we've been successful. My prayer is that there's never a service that we don't have new fish coming in the nets of God's grace. But each of you are a fishing boat. What's the title on the back of your life? Because here's what Jesus said. He said, I am the embodiment of the mission. And I've called you to fish. The Holy Spirit is the power for the mission. The church is the instrument for the mission. And the culture in which we live is the context of the mission. How many of you believe God has called you?